Hey there, e-commerce enthusiasts. Let me tell you about a game changer in shipping, ShipStation. It's the ultimate platform for simplifying your shipping process. With ShipStation, you can easily import, manage, and ship your orders in no time. It integrates seamlessly with your favorite e-commerce platforms and carriers, ensuring a smooth workflow. Gain valuable insights with their powerful analytics and reporting tools. Say goodbye to shipping headaches. Visit foxcitiesmm.com slash ship and level up your shipping game today. You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And we're back after oh, a nice break from this for a little bit. Was it even? Yeah, it's been it's been a little while. Okay. Just to give everybody a heads up, we don't know when these will get recorded. For some reason, Gavin has just gotten overly excited about yeah. Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, and he's been pumping out episodes for a while now. So yeah. what is it that you got in your coffer at this moment? Apparently, one of the episodes we were we gave it the warning that we were winding, and then I had multiple people be like, "Oh, that's too bad. I really like that. <laughs> I like that one." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." And then I got an invite to talk in Wrightstown, which is a, like a Fox City's area town, about one of these stories. And I got an invite to Plymouth near Sheboygan to talk about one of these stories and what the heck like so now now that we're stopping everybody wants this so yeah so to answer your question I have basically eight eight eight, sto- eight stories that give me like 20 30 minutes and they're ready to go like I've got the, the notes they just got to be polished up so yeah we will there may still be some rerun episodes in there and stuff like that we will try to pump those out over the next coming few months or whatever so just as the schedule allows it I guess yeah so, so a couple, couple Oshkosh, a Kakana, there's a Sheboygan one in there, Wyawiga, so there's a little variety. Very cool. So where are we going to today? Well, that depends. Now, that depends. I I mean, the answer the answer is Oshkosh. Okay. But if you want to, we can call it a Kakana story. Oh, that's awesome. I mean... You want to call it, it a Kakana story? After a little hiatus, we got to come back with a Kakana story, right? Yeah, yeah. Is this because somebody is originally from Kakana in the story? That's or exactly what, right. right. Nice. That's exactly right. Now they're just... They're they're sick of committing their crimes and murders in Kakana. They flee to Oshkosh and commit them there, more or less. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. All right, well, take her away. Yeah, so this story... People might actually know this story because people connected to it are actually still alive, which normally we don't do. It is old enough that it, it falls in that range that I'm comfortable doing. And and yeah, I mean, it, this, is, this is a messed up story. This is really messed up. Okay. It is the mystery of Stephen Capel. Or Steve. Steve Capel. Okay. 2019. This did not happen in 2019. I was just going to say, wow, you're really jumping ahead right now. In 2019, UW Oshkosh student uh, Bethany Gingler wrote a three-part deep dive into this case. I just wanted to put that right up front. My notes here are basically taken from her reporting, uh, so I can't really take credit for this. Her stuff is is online. If you search for this case, you will find her three-part article. So it has a couple pieces that I'm going to like skip over. Um, but she did a fantastic job. I mean, she got the news reports. She did interviews with family members. 
it sounds like she even got some some uh, documents related to the case. So um, fantastic work. Definitely want to give her credit right off the bat that this was not me doing yeah. the research <laughs> this time. So when you when you think, man, this was a well researched paper, it's because Gavin didn't do it. It's because I didn't do it. <laughs> but anyway, so so Stephen or Steve. Um, was born January 17th, 1947. Uh, he was the eldest child of Clifford and Eunice Capel of Kirkana. Nice. He grew to be six foot two inches tall, 210 pounds. He was a big dude. <laughs> he loved the water. He was an avid fisherman and hunter. Um, and he was, he was an athlete, of course, because he's a big dude. Uh, his sister remembers him as a playful brother who liked to use her hair to tie flies for fly fishing. Kind of weird, but Yeah, okay. that's a little weird. She says he was laid back, intelligent, and kind. He was involved in volleyball, wrestling, football, baseball, track, forensics, and creative writing at Kakana High School. Wow. A little bit of everything. Everything, yeah. yeah. Uh, during his senior year, he received honorable mention as an all-Mideast conference tackle for the football team. The faculty at Kakana High School said that he was a B student and never got into any trouble. So, solid guy all around. Okay, I'm curious to see where this is going. Yes. In high school, he had a high school sweetheart named Marjorie Mayo. If you want to see her photo, it's in my pocket. <laughs> and you can't see it over the podcast, but I, d I have her photo. So, um, which was not in the newspaper reporting, the photo. Cool. So I've got a photo that, that they didn't have. Because Gavin went to the yearbook and found it. Huh? Yes, I did. Good. Yes, I did. Part of the perk of being a Kakana historian. That's right. Their relationship ended in April 1965 the end of their senior year, and Stephen, distraught from the breakup, was arrested in Milwaukee after stealing a car and several items of merchandise. That's not typically how I handle a breakup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But apparently, he and Steve took it really bad, went to Milwaukee, stole a car. <laughs> His father said the incident was a cry for help. He said that Steve was low over the breakup, but soon after, he was back to his old self. His father said it was one of the most enjoyable summers we ever had with Steve. He spent that summer working at a paper mill, um, and had done so well that he that they wanted him back the following summer. Um, the reporting doesn't say what paper mill it is, but I assume it was Filmini's, um, because that's where his dad worked. Gotcha. In September, he was enrolled at UW Oshkosh, where he aspired to be a high school teacher. He was picked to be backup center for the Titan football team. Before school began, he attended a school dance at Oshkosh and was introduced to Jill Falk. Jill was also beginning her fall classes, and the pair started dating. Steve and Jill met nearly every day and walked to class together. The two often ate dinner together and spent time off campus at the movies. Steve was moody on occasion. He expressed concern to Jill over the possibility that he could flunk his classes, even though school had just started. <laughs> he was already worried, so he just very took his classes very seriously. Apparently, I don't really wouldn't worry 
Yeah, especially if he was weeks of school, but. and he was a B student in high school, student, which, which is, would lead you to believe he could do all right in high yeah. school or college, right? Yeah, I would think so. September twenty sixth, nineteen sixty five. Jill brings Steve home to meet her family. They had a good time. Everybody liked each other. September twenty seventh. <laughs> that was just a weird thing to throw in there. <laughs> Steve and Jill disagreed on what route to take to class, and Steve tugged on Jill, causing her to trip down some stairs to the Reeve Memorial Union. Later that day, Jill wrote Steve in a note, scolding him for being pushy. Jill gave Steve the note at the student union, and Steve immediately left without saying anything. He's being moody again. Yeah. Jill told their mutual friend Tim, Something is bothering Steve, and he won't tell me. So Tim followed Steve out of the union, and Steve refused to tell him. Tim would later say, What happened with Jill, that was a misunderstanding. He wasn't a mean person or an angry person. He treated everybody kindly. So causing her to trip on the stairs was an accident. Yeah. September 28th, 1965. Steve calls Jill and apologizes for talking her. He also met with her at her dorm room and gave her four letters and a book on Sigmund Freud, saying that maybe if she read the book, she would better understand his behavior. Don't know what uh, I was going to say, means. can you explain that? Because <laughs> Don't know what that means. Did she read the book? I don't know. <laughs> Steve's roommate last saw him at about 5.30 p.m. Steve seemed depressed that day. Another Oshkai student verified that Steve seemed to be in a low mood. Jill later met Steve for supper that day, and he asked if she had read the letters that he gave her, and she said no, she hadn't. Jill last saw Steve at 6.30 p.m. She then read Steve's letters an hour later, and was surprised by what Stephen had written. He expressed feelings of unworthiness and strong feelings of affection for Jill. She later said, I never realized the extent of his affection. That same day, former girlfriend Marjorie Mayo, his high school sweetheart, received a jumbled letter, jumbled is in quotes, I don't know what this means exactly, a jumbled letter from Steve. Steve wrote about his girlfriend, Jill, and how nice she was. <laughs> the letter included a picture of Jill and the note that she had given Steve the day before. The letter also contained statements saying that Steve was going away again, and this time, I know where I'm headed. Why you would send a letter to your ex-girlfriend with a photo of your current girlfriend and a letter that she wrote you is beyond me. It's very yeah. odd. Obviously, there there was some serious stuff going on in this guy's head that, that he needed to probably talk to somebody about or something. I think that's fair. Uh, it was raining that evening. Steve's friend Tim says that a paper boy reported seeing some men with Steve that night in the rain. They saw some fellas with Steve, and I don't think he was being handled too nicely. Then, Stephen vanished. No! <laughs> I'm just being, being dramatic. 
That was quite a dramatic pause, Gavin. Yeah. <laughs> 18 days after Steve disappeared, a man named Harold was fishing uh, on October 16th when he spotted a body floating in Miller's Bay about 29 feet off the shore. Um, Miller's Bay is part of Lake Winnebago. Okay. He contacted police who used their special boat to tow the body to shore. It took three days for the bloated, rotting body to be identified. We, of course, know who it was. It was Steve. It was Steve. They were able to identify him by dental records and fingerprints. When Steve was pulled from the water, he was naked and brutally beaten, including with two black eyes. The coroner said that Steve had been beaten around the head with a blunt instrument, but said it could have been it could have been fists if the, the fists hit him like really hard in the head. It definitely appeared that he had been in some sort of scuffle. Cloth bindings, which were later determined to be part of torn up trousers, were used to tie the victim's ankles, knees, and wrists together. The bindings left 18 inches of space between the two wrists and were knotted with a granny-style knot. The bindings that held his wrists together came loose during the removal of the body from the water. A size 38 athletic belt, commonly used by the Oshkosh football team, was used to attach a 30-pound rock to Steve's legs. Oh my god, so was he like thrown into the water alive it's a possibility wow that's awful uh, authorities doubted that this was a suicide after examining the bindings used they said that it would be very difficult for somebody <laughs> to tie themselves up in this way which you know i don't know exactly what this looks like but i would have to agree that if your ankles knees wrists are all tied together and a rock is tied to you. It's and you're completely naked for some reason. <laughs> this is probably not d by your choice. You probably didn't do that. <laughs> I mean, you could, I guess. I, again, I, I didn't see it. I don't know what this looks like. But normally it's hard to tie everything together, you know, yourself. Um, the authorities actually found a spot um, near the sailboat launch that had an impression in the sand same size and shape as the rock that was used to weight him down. So they oh, that's a really rock. good find. That is a really good find. <laughs> yeah. Especially after, like, weeks. They brought up a doctor from Milwaukee to perform the autopsy. They wanted a really good autopsy doctor to do this. Uh, she reported finding sediment, including silts and clays, packed with a paste-like black muck inside of his lungs. His left eye, cheek, and neck were swollen, and his upper right shoulder and wrist were bruised. But there was no bruising where his wrists were tied together. Based on what was found in his lungs, she believed that he was unconscious, but not dead, when he entered the water and actually ended up breathing in some of the crap off the bottom of the lake. Right, and that's exactly what I was going to ask, because that's what it sounds like to me. Like, Well, I wouldn't have guessed unconscious, but I would have just said that he was breathing underwater. Yeah, like, I'm not sure how she determines that he was unconscious, but <laughs> but definitely, yeah, that, that 
there's crap in his lungs indicated that he was tried to breathe underwater. Uh, the police made a house-to-house survey of the area and began questioning students. UWO campus, campus officials said that they were cooperating extensively with authorities. The civil defense personnel, Boy Scouts, and law enforcement officials searched several areas of the shoreline. Boats were used to drag the lake. The day after Steve's body was identified, the Oshkosh police chief said that, although at first he didn't think it was a suicide, he now thinks maybe it was a suicide. He said witnesses were reluctant to come forward with information for fear of having their names put in the newspaper. The newspapers reported an unidentified student was the last one to see Steve alive. This student said that Steve told him, the student, that he was leaving campus, and when the student tried to talk him out of it, Steve just walked away. A football teammate said that he heard through the rumor mill that Steve's girlfriend broke up with him, and Steve jumped from a boat with a rock tied to him. Tim, his friend, suspects foul play. Either he got in a mess with some townies, or someone else had a reason to do him in. You don't take all your clothes off, beat yourself up, and go out in the lake so far that when you drop the rock, you're underwater. And I would generally agree with Tim on this one. Yeah, I would too. I, I, Other than the fact that, that people said that he was kind of depressed, that's the only thing I could see that would reasonably point this at suicide, but that just seems so unlikely, just the way it was done. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's just a weird way to, like, kill yourself. It's a very weird way. Uh, the police chief sent a letter to the district attorney asking for a coroner's inquest, which they didn't need to do because, like, they had an autopsy and they did all this stuff and they had an investigation. So they didn't need to do it, but they wanted it because they wanted something official on the record of what the cause was. So they got the coroner's inquest together. I'm not really clear on the details of how this would change things, but it sort of, like, adds closure Mm -hmm. in a legal sense. So so they did. Six jurors would determine Steve's cause of death at the coroner's inquest, which took place less than two months after his body was discovered. The inquest lasted 10 hours and included testimony from 22 witnesses, including classmates at Kona High School and Oshkosh, police and crime lab officials, Steve's former girlfriends, and his parents. The coroner testified that Steve was unconscious when he entered the water, or he could have been conscious when he entered the water, and then he became unconscious by striking something in the water. Again, I don't know how they determine that, but whatever. Um, There was a medication in his system that was similar to a time-delay cold capsule, but that was it. Like, he wasn't drunk or anything else. An official testified the bindings used on Steve's body fit together to form the left leg and rear section of a pair of khakis. Traces of similar men's khakis were found at the boat launch site. So, apparently, they found other pieces of the pants that were used to tie him up. Well, and the question I would ask is, were they his pants? They did not know if the trousers belonged to Steve. (laughs) Very next line in your... (laughs) Thing, they uh, said that khakis were way too popular to be able to tell whose. The officials testified that the belt used to attach the rock was able to be traced back to Steve's football uniform. So it was his own athletic belt. 
And um, I am not an athlete, obviously. Um, but do you know, like, is this like the thing they wear to like prevent hernias and stuff? Is that what this is? It could hernias. like the like like when a weightlifter has like that belt around them. When Football they're, players when don't wear that, though, do they? I don't know. Well, maybe when they're. I guess maybe if they have one for when they're, you know, I'm just trying. Weights. I'm trying to figure out what an athletic belt is. So I guess I took it as like part of his football uniform. Okay. You know, or that would be my guess. Like, like I think football uniforms have a little belt to tighten. Okay. But but I could be dead wrong. I have no idea what. Okay. So we're not helpful on that. Yeah. But Sorry. I'm just trying. To, I'm just trying to get a better picture of what this thing was that was tied to the rock. But okay. Three psychiatrists testified at the inquest. Three. Wow. Three psychiatrists. All three testified that they felt Steve committed suicide based on motive and intent. There is a possibility or even a good probability that death was caused by self-destruction, one of them said. Another one said, A person as disturbed as this boy could have wanted his last play to be a grandstand play to fulfill his feeling of inadequacy. So that's their opinion. His father testified, quote, Under oath, I am convinced that Steve was murdered. The coroner's jury deliberated for 20 minutes before returning with a verdict. We, the jury, feel that there is not enough concrete evidence to prove when, where, or how the victim entered the water to prove either suicide or murder and it is the jury's recommendation the case remain open for further investigation. Which, I'm going to give them credit on that. Um, not having, like, all the, the records and the photos and everything else. Like, I don't know the facts. Mm-hmm. But this is clearly not sounding to me like a suicide. It does not sound to me like a suicide, too. Even if he's depressed, and even if even if these psychiatrists say that he wasn't quite right. I, I don't. This this defies me that like, oh, I'm going to commit suicide and I'm going to do it in the most outrageous way to show you all. Like, no, I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I have a theory on on this that I want to talk to you about, but first, uh, finish up the story. Okay. So Steve's sister later said that her parents endured a horrendous experience at the inquest. It took a tremendous toll on them, how the people testifying tried to make it sound like a suicide. Given the, given the evidence, it was hard to take. That Christmas, Clifford, their dad, brought home a puppy. It was a brown poodle, and Mom was upset. She said, you can't replace a son with a dog. And he said, I never want to replace my son, but we need to have something to bring some happiness to this house. Um, a sister recalls the mother sitting in a rocking chair on Christmas saying, the dog's got to go, the dog's got to go. And then that little puppy jumped up on her lap and they were best friends ever <laughs> since. <laughs> so when when Bethany Gengler, the, uh, the Oshkosh student who wrote this uh, the news report, she was looking into this and she was informed by the Oshkosh Police Department that the evidence was destroyed in 1969 at the request of the district attorney, despite the coroner's inquest jury saying that we don't know and there should be more investigation. 
So it isn't just that they didn't keep investigating. They destroyed the file fewer than five years later. That is really bizarre. It's extremely bizarre. The sister said, this is, this is current times. The sister said, I can't help but think this is some type of cover-up. Sweep this under the rug so that we can move on. And then not giving Steve justice? That's just as horrific as the death. It's like his death is not worth what it might do to the university, but what it might do to the community. Like it didn't mean anything. Are they getting pressure not to pursue this because it would look bad for the university? Their enrollment would go, go down? Is it something related to the football team? Was there some type of scuffle or bullying on the team? Steve's friend Tim agrees and wonders if the police were protecting somebody higher up in the community. Interesting. Where do you want to go with that? So, this is what what I see from what you just presented there. This is what I think is the most likely scenario that happened. Okay. I believe that something... So, he went out with friends and something, an accident happened. He got killed. Okay. And the friends freaked out and ditched his body in the lake. And the reason why I think that... First of all, I can't believe that this is a suicide just by the way the body was ditched. I, I agree. Well, I, with, I I agree with you on that. I don't see this being a suicide. I find, that based on what we know, that seems so far fetched to me. And I feel like so somebody had to do this, and I think whoever, I don't think somebody intentionally killed him. I think it was okay. an accident because. He, because of the way his body was ditched, the fact that they're using clothes to tie him up and stuff. Sure. And throw him in the water tells me that it was like, it wasn't premeditated whatsoever. They looked around at the stuff they had in their vicinity and, and used whatever was around them to ditch the body. Basically, you know, they find a rock on the beach. I, I mean, if they were intending to do this, I feel like, they would have done a much, you know, if they were knew they were going to drop a body in the water, mm. they would have had something with them to do that. But they didn't. Yeah. And I think that they, that's the reason for that is because this was all an accident. Okay. And the reason I think it's like friends is because, like you said, the only real, and this is really, really loose. The, the reason why I think it's friends is because, like, the f- whole football there was some piece of football gear used for it. Mm. Like it leads me to believe that it might've been like a bunch of the football players were out yeah, hanging out and this happened and that they would have known how to get access to his football gear or whatever. Yeah. And maybe, maybe he was just with random people and it, that just happened to be in a car or something. Yeah. That's where I tend to go with this. What do you think? Do you think I'm way out in left field? No, I, I'm actually, I'm very close to where you are on that. I would disagree a little bit in that if he was alive when he entered the water, then I don't see this as them just like dumping the body after an accidental death. So there's that. But otherwise, I generally agree. Well, I don't think that this was premeditated. I think whatever happened was very like all of a sudden maybe not like five minutes but definitely like within a half an hour things got out of hand and my suspicions 
definitely lean in the direction of the football team. Yeah. You know, whether they're his friends or not. But they, something. They strike me as the people. I don't think this was random, and I don't think this was strangers. Mm-hmm. I think it was definitely somebody he knew. And the football gear would lead me to believe it was somehow connected to the football team. And they're the kind of people. No, no, just not that I know. I don't know this football team, but they're the kind of people I could see like being in a situation where they're gonna like beat a guy up and, and strip him naked. Mm-hmm. Not to, not a stereotype, but like I could picture that, college that, guys doing that. That could be like a hazing thing, like a hazing of, thing. of the football team, and that right. went horribly wrong for some reason. Exactly, and something happened. And I would go as far as to say. Now they did. You did say at some point that he may have been knocked out. He may. He may not have even been all, or he may have been knocked out. I think was what right. it was when he hit the water. He right. might not have been conscious, and maybe they actually thought he had died, ditched the body, and and then he That's actually possible. wasn't dead. Woke, came to underwater. And then that's how the yeah that's possible, but yeah, I, I, hazing was exactly the way I picture this mm-hmm. is something similar to that because just there's so many things about this that strikes me as it's more than one person who did it to him, and the being naked thing is weird. Mm-hmm. I not that I know maybe a lot of people who kill themselves get naked first, but I generally don't think so. And also generally don't think when you're about to kill somebody, you strip them naked first. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's how that works. But it does make sense in the hazing context because that's something I could see. Right. Is being like, <clears throat> we're going to do something like crazy embarrassing to this guy. Right. But, and then it just went wrong. It just the, went wrong. The thing that I do find interesting, though, is the fact that they destroyed all the evidence. I'm curious. So, the theories I could come up with that is, is I think I think it was the sister that said, did they do it because they're trying to cover, you know, they're trying to protect the college. Which, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe... But yeah, that that I think is going too far. I don't think it's protecting the college. I don't think it's anything to do with enrollment. Like I don't, I don't think being like, oh, let's sweep this under the rug because it's going to hurt enrollment. I think that's going a bit far. So if it isn't that, the only thing I can come to is is that somebody that was involved in this had some sort of pull to make that happen, just to officially make it go away, so they knew they were. Which I would it's like possible. to think that that's not the case, but I would love to know if the police actually looked at. Well, and they probably wouldn't have, because by the time the evidence was destroyed, nobody was nobody probably cared about this case. I mean, it was five years later. There wasn't. I mean, I'm sure they still have a detective assigned to it. Yeah. But it's one of these things where I'm sure that detective, it's a file on his desk, and he never looks at it because. Sure. What are you going to do with it at five years after it happened? So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I can't really speak to that one, but yeah. But yeah, you're right. Like, this is a very peculiar and interesting yeah. story. Yeah, this this upsets me 
like obviously not the way it upsets the family. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're legitimately like it tore their family apart. Right. But like this upsets me that the record is destroyed. When when I when a police department tells me the record's been destroyed after fifty or sixty years, that's fine. You get it. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I I understand. But the, for them to actually come out and be like, "Oh yeah, we destroyed that a couple of years after the fact," like, why? Right. And like ex- that makes no sense. And especially since like I can't. I mean, you and I are well, and I'll use me as a number one example because I guess you're kind of a researcher, so you're yeah. you're kind of along the lines of doing things that cops do with investigative sure. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, right. but. I'm not at all, and I look at this case, and I say, that is extremely suspicious, to the point where, of all the cases that you get rid of, you should not be getting rid of this one, because right. because you can say, well, it's probably suicide, but there's a lot there to point to it not being a suicide. Right. And it's just weird. And, I mean, and could he have killed himself? Maybe, but it's just like... It's he it's would have possible. to be weird. It would have to be. I mean, he would have to be skilled to have done what he did to himself. Yeah, it's it's possible, but it's just so unlikely. I I don't know why you would do that. I don't. And I mean, and maybe he was that mentally messed up, but I don't know. I don't even know that that would explain it. I. I will say, based on the story, that I do not think the man should have been dating people. Because he seemed to not handle breakups very well. Yeah. Well, And and it is weird that he... Like, I believe, didn't you say the one to his ex-girlfriend, like the high school sweetheart, Mm -hmm. actually said that he was going somewhere where... Well, he said that to her. Yeah, like yeah. that he was going somewhere or something like that. Like almost like he knew something was going to happen to right. him. Right. But then again, but there, the premeditated, it just does not seem like this could be a premeditated thing whatsoever, just by the way. I don't know. Yeah. It is a super weird story. Yeah, and that's why I called it the mystery of, <laughs> of Stephen Capel, because... I can't even, I can't call it the murder, even though I think it was, Mm -hmm. because it's just like, who knows what happened here? Somebody does. Somebody does. (laughs) And they, and they could, they could very well still be alive because. 65? I mean. Yeah, 65. So Steve's born in 1947. That's not that old. There's a lot of people in that age range range still around. If it was a murder. We can't say it was a murder. I tend to lean towards it was. We can't say it was a murder, but I think we can definitely say it looks looks like a murder. murder. So I guess, well, I will say... I'm not going to, like, name suspects. (laughs) No. I'm going to get in some serious... I don't have any to name, but, I mean, then I can get in some trouble. You should really look and see if you can get... Well, but I guess... The evidence has been destroyed. Has the police file been destroyed? Then yeah, the too? police file's gone. Yeah, oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, the apparently the coroner's inquest file might still exist. I couldn't tell, but I got that impression that the student got a copy of it. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe that actually was quotes from the newspaper. I don't know. Well, if the person that wrote this article does have that, 
we would and they are listening to this podcast we'd love to yeah. see it you yeah know? i actually shot her an email a couple of years ago when she did write this just saying how great of a job i let her know at the time because i was really impressed but that means she wouldn't be a student at uw oshkosh anymore so i don't know how to well, find her now mm-hmm. did she ever respond to you I just oh yeah curious. all right well but that was for being like a a college paper. It was better journalism than I've seen in the real paper. <laughs> so it was really well done. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I feel like this was a great, uh, whatever we want to call it, but a great re new new episode of this yeah. podcast because this is I I'm gonna put this on in its own way. This is easily in the top five episodes Fox City's Murder nice. and Mayhem has ever had. So. Nice. Good on you for that one. Yeah, so. I thought this was a pretty good story. All right. Well, if you don't got anything else, I think we can wrap this one up. I, I've got nothing else other than if, if people have suggestions for topics, send them. That's like the biggest hurdle. Like, It's it's finding stories and finding the time. And the time, I can make the time happen. Mm-hmm. The stories can't always make. I'm good. We're, we've got like four months of stories. We're good. But after that four months, who knows? So if you if you know of a story, definitely send it to MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. You could just tell me the name of like the person, and I could do the work from okay. there. That's fine. But I don't always know all the stories, so you know, just just point me in the right direction. And and I think it, saying that it's important to to mention because I believe there has been stories that you've you've kind of gone down a rabbit hole with. Mm-hmm. And they just, there wasn't enough there to make it a, p- a podcast, correct? Correct, yeah. So at the beginning of this, we said, uh, or I said, that like there's eight that we can do. And that's those are legit eight we can do. There's another maybe five that I started that we'll probably never do. Because, because you just, once you went down that hole, it yeah. was kind of like, yeah, there's just not enough here. Yeah, it's like two people got in a fight, one person killed the other person. And, you know, that's fine. But I want there to be a little something more, more there, like yeah. a, 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 an angle. Like, just a person dying doesn't automatically make a good story. Right. All right, well, that'll wrap this one up, and we'll be back, well... We'll be back in two weeks, maybe with a new episode, if we can get one recorded. Otherwise, it'll be a great rerun because uh, the reruns are awesome. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem.